chapter 12. Luke 12, verses 1 through 12. This is God's word given to his people for our good, for our life in him. Let us give our attention to its reading. Luke 12, 1 through 12. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. The grass withers, the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. Who or what do you ultimately fear? In order to answer that question, we need to look inside of ourselves and we ask, what controls or dictates the things that we do? The opinions of man or the words of God? And what would it look like to live a life that was controlled by the words of God, by trust in his commandments and his promises. The martyrs of the Christian faith, the brave men and women who stood in their hour of greatest trial, show us that kind of strength that was driven by the fear of God and not the fear of man. The early church father, Polycarp, one of the most famous martyrdoms in the early church, was told to renounce the name of Jesus Christ. He responds famously, says, 86 years. I have served my King and my Lord. Not once has he done me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my King and my Savior? He was controlled by faithfulness to Christ, by the fear of God and not the fear of man. His life was a testament to Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Today, We consider the fear of God in our own lives and how important that fear is. The fear of God is so important because by it we overcome the fear of man. 
In order to cultivate a healthy fear of God in our lives, we must do several things. We must fight against hypocrisy. We must live in light of eternity and judgment. We must believe in and confess Jesus. And we must trust the Spirit's strength. First, then, we must fight against hypocrisy. In our previous passage, Jesus has caused quite a stir with the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the law. He has rebuked them much stronger than he has anywhere else up to this point in the Gospel of Luke. And while the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Israel were in many ways opposed to Jesus before them, they now are dead set on squashing the movement that Jesus has started. But the energy around Jesus is reaching a fever pitch. We read here that thousands are coming, they're pressing in, they're starting to trample on each other. As the crowd grows and grows, Jesus takes an opportunity to turn and to speak to his disciples. That's an important thing to realize because the things that Jesus says in this passage in many ways are said in light of what the disciples are going to go through later in their lives, particularly after the resurrection of Christ and after Pentecost. They will be sent out and after they are sent out they will be dragged into the courts. They will be the object of public scorn. They will need to speak in defense of themselves in a moment. All of these things or what the disciples will need to face, specifically uh, the twelve will need to face later in their lives. So it's true that we need to understand this as a word spoken directly to the disciples, but we need to understand that Jesus calls us to the same fear of God over and against the fear of man in our lives. We all need to live in light of that. We all need to respond in light of that, fearing God and not fearing man. Jesus gives them first a warning. Beware the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees. He takes out all mystery of what this is. He says, it is hypocrisy. The leaven of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. What is hypocrisy? It is living in such a way as to create a public impression of yourself which is at odds with who you are on the inside. Living in a way that creates a public impression of who you are at odds with how you truly are. The Pharisees concealed their corruption under outward piety, under outward religious observance. Jesus likened them to a bowl that is clean on the outside, but dirty on the inside. That's the kind of bowl that you wouldn't use, right? Because it's useless. A bowl that is dirty on the inside cannot be used to hold food without getting it dirty. You'd liken it to a a, a brand new car, Beautiful exterior, clean paint, even the interior, all of the seats, plush leather, all of the options. But under the hood, there's a 30-year-old engine disconnected from the fuel line. Engine won't turn over, won't start. That car is not going to go anywhere. That is hypocrisy. The Pharisees loved public recognition. They tithed and they would have these extravagant greetings in the marketplace and in the synagogues. But their love of this attention was set against Uh, they're missing the love and the justice of God. So they loved one thing, and in doing that, they missed the important love of God, loved their attention that they received. Jesus knows the danger of this kind of attitude, the danger of this kind of hypocrisy. So he warns his disciples because he knows the human heart, and he knows how you can easily be swept away into having a heart like the Pharisees. That yeast can easily work its way into the hearts of others. 
He knows the tendencies that we have. It speaks to why we need to be so concerned with this idea of the fear of man and be concerned with the fear of God over against it. Our sinful hearts want to follow and trust all the things that we see, right? We want to avoid pain and suffering and rejection. And sometimes it doesn't even matter the cost. We want to avoid all of those things. So if the disciples of Jesus see the Pharisees succeeding, living according to their hypocrisy, they will be tempted to live that way. But Jesus strengthens his warning with a central truth, and it is this. The sin of hypocrisy is foolish. Outward obedience and inward disobedience is foolish because everything will eventually be made known. That's why Jesus says hypocrisy is foolish. In other words, the truth will out. So live according with what you know is right. Live striving for outward obedience and inward obedience together. Live in service to God. For God, the judge of all, will bring all things to light. The Pharisees lived as though the truth would never come out. And their, their way of living was foolish. It's not, it's, all the, these things are never going to come out. And so often we can fall into the same kinds of thinking. We think that if we never uh, commit acts of outward sexual immorality, we'll be fine. But if we're drowning in lust on the inside, things are not fine. We think that if we never are violent towards anyone, do harm to anyone, everything is fine. But if we live in the midst of uncontrollable inward anger, things are not fine. Who we are, what we really are, in the deepest depths, it will come out. For this reason, we ought to strive to live with utmost integrity and conviction that our lives matter to God, the creator of our bodies and our minds and our souls, and all need to be given in service to him, in devotion to him. Just as Jesus taught us in last week's passage, God created body and soul. Both are to be given unto him. Paul describes this for us in Romans chapter 14. He says, none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. He works out the implications of this. He says, since we belong to the Lord, God is the one who will judge Since God is the one who will judge, we shouldn't pass judgment on others. Rather, we should live in light of our coming judgment. That's what he says later on in Romans 14. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. Every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is why the fear of man is foolish. Every proud conceit of our hearts, every vain or despicable thought, all of it, for all of it, we will answer to God. But the great hope of the gospel is that when Christ comes again, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess to him. But because of what Christ has done on the cross, we can bend the knee to him now. And that is what we are doing in our worship. When we worship God through our songs, through our lives, through every day of our devotion to him, what we are doing is we are living in light of the reality of the last day. All those who live in light of the, of the Pharisees, who live that way, they will bend the knee to Jesus Christ. But we, as his own, as those who see our sin and our need for salvation, can do that now. Fight hypocrisy. Fight hypocrisy. Second, learn, live in light of eternity and judgment. Uh, 
in verses 4 through 7, we see the importance of fear. There's five occurrences of the verb to fear in verses 4 to 7. Jesus does this because he wants us to consider, consider how paralyzing fear can be if it is misplaced. Great Reformed preacher, Church of England, J.C. Ryle said this, The fear of man is one of the greatest obstacles which stand between the soul and heaven. What will men say of me? What will they think of me? What will they do to me? How often these little questions have turned the balance against the soul and kept men bound hand and foot by sin and the devil. Thousands would never hesitate a moment to storm a breach or face a lion who dare not face the laughter of relatives, neighbors, and friends. Most of us can probably relate to that, can't we? Human beings are capable of radical bravery and courage, but for some reason, ridicule and shame are unimaginable for us. We wake up in a cold sweat after an embarrassing dream. We think of an embarrassing moment 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, and we still feel the pain well up inside of us. We want this life to be free of the weight of scorn, so because of that, we rationalize living with the fear of man. In order to combat that, Jesus says, take an eternal perspective. Take an eternal perspective. Live in light of eternity and of judgment. He says in a manner that seems cold and careless to us that we should not fear those who can only kill our bodies. And even if it seems blunt, the the idea is perfectly logical. This life is temporary. The life to come is not. Therefore, the question we ought to ask is, who holds authority over the life to come? Those who could kill the body, which for the apostles would have been the Jewish leaders, perhaps the Romans, that's the worst punch that they can throw, isn't it? Even Satan himself, He does not have authority to cast into hell because we read in Revelation that hell itself was made by God for the devil and his angels. So Jesus says, whoever can cast into hell, that is the one to fear. The word here for hell is the word Gehenna, which was a place outside of Jerusalem, a valley a garbage pit of sorts that was constant burning and the stench, a disgusting place. And that became synonymous with the place in the life to come of eternal judgment and eternal suffering. Some teachers, theologians, authors have suggested that because this in the past was a real place outside of Jerusalem that Jesus is not actually teaching us about an eternal place where all those who are judged will have to go. It's ironic, isn't it, that such a teaching, which is a a clear denial of the clear teaching of Scripture, it's ironic that that kind of thing would arise from inside this passage where Jesus is warning us about the fear of man, when it so clearly is the fear of man that would prevent pastors or teachers from teaching the very clear truth that Jesus speaks of not only here, but in many places, that hell is real, that God will judge and he will banish unrepentant sinners to hell, a place of eternal judgment and torment. So in an age where Christians, many of them, don't believe in hell, please be reminded today that Jesus believed in it. He taught it with absolute clarity. 
His point is that the only one you should fear is God, for he is the one who declares eternal destiny. The only properly placed fear is upon him. What does it mean to fear God? What does fear of God mean? It means to heed his words, to obey his commandments, to trust his promises, to understand who we are in light of him, to image him as the image of God. Proverbs 8 says this, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And the Bible says something that clear, you need to pay attention. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Why? Because God hates evil and he will punish it. Which brings us back to Jesus' point that because of who God is, we ought to only fear him. Fear produces in us an awe and a holy reverence. It should strike us how quick everyone is today to dismiss biblical ideas of God because they want to create an idea of God according to their own liking. They create him in their own image. Sadly, even in churches nowadays, the the clear teachings of God are left by the wayside and so often casual triviality fills the time as if this God we are worshiping is not the one who can decide an eternal destiny. If there is a time to be serious, which again does not mean that we can't be joyful and joyfully sing to God and assemble in in, in the joy of his grace and his mercy, but if there's a time to be serious, it would be the time that we meet this God, the God of Scripture, the Lord of all. The disciples were going to be faced with all kinds of trials and challenges, but through it all, Jesus urges them to remember uh, their lives and to live their lives within the complex of eternity. There was Bishop John Hooper during the time of the English Reformation was going to be martyred for preaching the gospel, the gospel of being saved by grace alone through faith alone. And his family, his friends, many of them tried to, to uh, urge, they urged him to recant all of his teachings so that he could survive. He said this, very important for us to cling to a mindset like this. He said, life is sweet, death is bitter, but eternal life is more sweet. Eternal death is more bitter. Just as Jesus urges the disciples, he urges us to make this comparison. Life is sweet, death is bitter. Eternal life is more sweet. Eternal death is more bitter. Fear God. But we are to fear, but don't be afraid, aren't we? We are to fear, but don't be afraid. If you notice, he says this in verse 7, don't be afraid. In the midst of all of, the, all of these commandments by God to fear, fear him. And then he says in verse 7, don't be afraid. Two things that we should notice as we consider fearing God, but then not being filled with fear. The first is in verse 4. He calls his disciples his friends. His friends. This is the only place in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus refers to his disciples as my friends. Why should we take note of this? First, we need to understand Greco-Roman, Mediterranean world, the ideas of friendship. And how important it was in that, in that time? Jesus isn't throwing out some kind of colloquial phrase here, just my friends for no reason. He's wanting to make sure that his disciples understand that they are his friends. In the midst of these very difficult teachings that he's reminding them, eternity and judgment. In that time, one circle of friends was a limited group of people for whom you had unlimited responsibilities. If they had needs, you addressed them. And you didn't think twice about it. Friends have all things in common. That comes from uh, that time in the world. Whatever your friend needs, you will help him. 
Thus, in the midst of this stark warning about eternity and the reality of hell, Jesus is calling them his friends to make sure that they understand that though they stand in need of something so that they aren't judged eternally, he will do it for them. He will be the one who does it for them and make sure that he addresses their greatest and their deepest needs. Jesus teaches, this, uh, teaches his disciples about friendship famously in John 15, doesn't he? Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus shows us that the central purpose of his mission is not to bring harm to his own, but to address their greatest and their deepest need. To be the one who would provide redemption for them. This is biblical friendship. And what a refreshing change that is from modern tolerance, isn't it? Modern tolerance, biblical friendship. Modern tolerance, leave people alone, let them think whatever they want, let them believe whatever they want, live whatever way they want. Biblical friendship, acknowledging truly the needs that people have and then doing something about it. Biblical friendship, galaxies away from modern tolerance that we see in today's world. Jesus' purpose is not divergent from the Father's purpose. That leads us into the second thing that we need to consider in light of Jesus' words, and that is the the heavenly Father's care for us. He uses the example of sparrows, which were available in abundance at that time. If anything was worthless in that world, it was sparrows. So Jesus uses sparrows to argue from the lesser to the greater. If he cares for them, then he cares for his children. Sparrows worth mere pennies. And Jesus says, if God, the one whom we should fear, gives life to the sparrows, if he scatters the seed that they eat from day to day, then surely he cares more for his children. So these two things, Jesus' friendship, the the care of our Heavenly Father, go together to form the hope of the gospel of Jesus. Jesus says he will lay down his life for his friends, he will give his life for us, and the Father from whom comes all good things cares for all from the least to the greatest. So we fear God, but we are not afraid. We do not cower in fear. We do not think that he is out to get us. We do not think that God is waiting to cast us into hell. We remember the gospel, the hope of the mercy and the grace of God, the forgiveness that we have in and through him. This truth gives great courage in the midst of all situations, all challenges, all things that you face, all things that the disciples were going to face. Jesus said, remember to live in light of eternity. Joyful to have Corey join us today. Came across this uh, wonderful, wonderful quote this week. There was a prisoner uh, who was imprisoned, and he came to realize God's love for him in Christ. And out of the window of his prison, he saw a sparrow. And he wrote this I am happy and free, though tombed within this hell, for mighty acts of God I see through cold bars of my cell. For sparrows play outside my wall and flit from fence to tree. I know he grieves there every fall, and he is here with me. Martin Luther said that sparrows become theologians and preachers to the wisest of men, for they teach us about the care of God 
his boundless love for us. So remember, brothers and sisters, God's children are worth more than many sparrows. It's a comfort to all of our fears. Yet within that comfort, there's a true and honest and holy reverence for God. We must stand in awe that the one who has the power to cast into hell welcomes sinners into his home. That's the power of the cross, the power of the mercy, the grace of God. For it is in the shadow of the cross that we know that truly we are Jesus' friends. Truly we are God's beloved children. He who spared not his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? The call upon us then is to confess Christ and to live in the power of the Spirit. In verses 8 and 9, Jesus shows us the centrality of repentance in the gospel message. To acknowledge Christ, to confess him as Lord, is to see and embrace him as Savior. Verse 8 brings us up into the heavenly courtroom, which we've seen already, right? All secret things will be revealed. All the hidden things will be brought to light, which is a terrifying fear for all of us. Who wants to have their deepest, darkest secrets unearthed and revealed? No one. But when we confess the name and the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, he stands for us and he speaks for us. And on that great day, Jesus will win the case of all of those who trust in him. Because even though the evidence is stacked against us, Jesus' blood covers it all. So we need to trust in that and rejoice in that. This does not mean that the judgment of believers is nothing. I think if you read the New Testament, it's clear that we will give an account to God. But on that great day, who will speak for us? Who will advocate for us? Jesus Christ, Savior of all. It's for this reason that the coming of Christ must be a great joy for us. We will face many trials in this life, but we need to know and understand that Christ calls us to confess his name and to hold it in high honor in living for him. J.C. Ryle once again said this, the duty of confessing Christ is incumbent on all Christians in every age of the church. Let us never forget that. It is not for martyrs only, but for all believers in every rank of life. It needs no blowing a trumpet. It requires no noisy boasting. It needs nothing more than using the daily opportunity. But one thing is certain, if a man loves Jesus, he ought not to be ashamed to let people know it. We're not the apostles, we're not Paul or Peter, but Jesus demands our loyalty. In verses 9 and 10, there's some further teaching upon this. Perhaps you feel as though the bar is being set so high. So Jesus gives us this comforting word. If you speak a word against the Son of Man, you will be forgiven. We need to understand that in light of the story of Peter, don't we? In Jesus' hour of trial, what did Peter do? He denied him. He denied Jesus. He didn't deny Jesus in court in front of a great ruler. He denied him when a servant girl said, aren't you one of those who are with him? Someone who had very little social status probably wouldn't be believed on her own. She accuses Peter. Peter runs in fear and he denies Jesus. If there are times when we fear man more than we fear God, when we do not live up to the calling of confessing Jesus and always living In light of that confession, there is forgiveness, there is grace, there is mercy. Even when our emotions carry us away, when we speak a word against God and against our Savior, Jesus Christ, to deny him like Peter, if we confess and repent, we can be forgiven. Jesus says there's something that can't be forgiven. 
That's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This is more than simply denying the truth. This is more than being carried away in your emotions and speaking against a word against the Son of God. It is a constant denial of God and the word of his salvation in the midst of a mind and a heart that knows it to be true, but persists in willful rejection of it. Not only that, but it's attributing the work of Christ to the power of Satan. If you're worried that you have committed this sin, then in all likelihood you haven't. Come to Jesus and find forgiveness. Even if you have denied him or wandered from him, if you've lived according to the fear of man, Christ's blood is sufficient for any sinner who repents. So Jesus says, because of that, live in trust of the Holy Spirit to guide you in the way that you should go. He says it to the disciples, he says it to us, to stand up for truth and righteousness in our jobs, in our schools, to stand against the sexual madness of our day, to serve God in the mundane obligations of each and every day of our lives. Live in the fear of God, not the fear of man, knowing your sins are covered in his blood. There was a girl in Southeast Asia, very poor family, was convinced to go to a different country to have a well-paying job that she might provide for her family. Once the process started, tragically, it was obvious that this was a trick. She was forced into sex slavery, spent the next several years in the deepest pits of pain and despair and abuse, wickedness that most of us could never dream of. Thankfully, one day she was rescued, she and all the other girls from her particular brothel, and on the wall of this young girl there was written, Psalm 27.1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Fear God, not man. Let's pray. Father, all of these truths from your word, apply them to our hearts. By the power of your spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's bond together in song, singing verses 1 